Assalamu alaikum and welcome to a special Voice of the Cape broadcast coming to you live from the Darul Ilm uh, Center in Salt River in Pope Street. We are going to be embarking on a lecture in the series that's been entitled The Life and the Legacy of Imam Abdullah Harun. And this evening we're going to be in conversation with Jamia Halant. This is going to be dealing with the topic of the Muslim community's response to the 123 days of the detention of Imam Abdullah Harun from the 28th of May to the 27th of September 1969. And of course all of us can remember what happened on September the 27th apart from the Imam passing away or being murdered in detention there was a massive earthquake that struck the town of Tulbach Ironically and interestingly, the town in which Spake von Weyck came from, who was one of his torturers. Tonight at the Darul Ilum Center in Salt River, we are going to have a very critical look at the community's response to the 123-day detention and murder of Imam Abdullah Harun. Our guest tonight is Jamia Halant. She lived opposite the Imam's mosque, which was Stechman Road, in Claremont. And how many of us remember all the families that used to stay in all the roads surrounding Claremont and Stechman Road before the dreaded Group Areas Act? Her father, Sadiq, who was a teacher, became one of Imam Harun's students and was also one of the pioneers in uh, the Claremont Muslim Youth uh, Society, if I've got that correct. Jamia's address this evening will be followed by a Q&A. We are going to discuss the issues and of course we will be taking questions from the floor and joining the panel after Jamia's address will be Imam Rashid Omar, the Imam of Claremont Main Road Mosque and a man who wears many, many hats. Jamia's address, I can guarantee you, will be a personal, a poignant and a probing one. And there are certainly many questions 50 years later that still have to be answered. I'm now going to hand the mic to Jamia. I'm going to quickly shift the mic stand and then she will address us, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Rabbi shrahni sadri wa yasirni amri wa khlul uqratan min lisani yafkaw kawli. So I was just when Imam Harun was killed in detention in September 1969. But I grew up with an awareness that he had been a significant figure in the Muslim community and particularly in the lives of my parents and some of my extended family. The connections to Imam Harun as I was growing up were always there for me, starting with my first experience of attending a masjid. My father, as Shafiq mentioned, Al-Marhum Siddiq Khalant, was born and grew up in Claremont in Draper Street, which is just under the subway from Stechman Road. While Claremont Maynard Masjid was the only masjid in Claremont when he was growing up, when Imam Harun became the Imam of Al Jamia Masjid in Stechman Road at age 31 in 1955, my father, a young teacher in his 20s, along with many other youth of Claremont, were drawn to Stechman Road Masjid, where Imam Harun was a refreshing, youthful alternative to the Abdul Old dynasty at Main Road Masjid. Of course, 
Many of them already knew Imam Harun socially, and some were already his students. So it was a natural move to follow the Imam to Stechman Road. But it was also his message of Islam that resonated with the youth and his willingness to engage with them on social and political issues of the time that attracted the youth to Stechman Road Masjid. My father became part of the youth group that started the Claremont Muslim Youth Association under the leadership of Imam Harun and became one of the Imam's close companions. Thus, Stechman Road Masjid became part of my family's life as I was growing up. From around age four or five, I used to go to Masjid on Eid mornings with my father and we only ever went to Al Jamia Masjid. This was the only masjid I knew for many years and Imam Harun was this mythical figure who was once the beloved Imam at the Al Jamia Masjid. I remember being very proud of going to a masjid that carried my name although we were fondly, we more fondly referred to it as Tehman Road Masjid. I don't have any memories of meeting Imam Harun but my mother always referred to the Imam's love of children and used to relate that when he visited our home, he would like to pick me up and ask me to recite the Shahada because I used to recite it with the English translation, which he loved hearing every time. The English transla translation was a novelty for him because, of course, the Imam's first language was Afrikaans. But it is another story that always fascinated me and that was the story of the night the Imam was buried. My mother always used to tell us the story how on the night Imam Harun was buried, my father was at the Imam's home and she was eight months pregnant and at home with me and my one-year-old brother when an earthquake struck Cape Town. She describes the fear and impact of having the earth shake that evening after an emotional weekend of first hearing of Imam Harun's death on the Saturday, then the trauma of waiting for his body to be released on the Sunday, and culminating in his janazah and burial on the Monday, which was the 29th of September 1969. In relating this story of the earthquake for my mother and I guess for many others close to the Imam, there was an unforgettable link between the martyrdom of Imam Harun and the night the earth shook. The earthquake on the 29th of September 1969 remains the most destructive earthquake in South African history. And it occurred on the day the Imam was put into the ground in the Mowbray Cemetery in Cape Town. It was indeed a poignant moment for many who loved the Imam. As you can imagine, many of them were just returning home after the janazah. It was only during the 1980s that my own awareness grew of the political activities and struggle for social justice that led to the martyrdom of Imam Harun. This awareness was integral to my own political awakening in the anti-apartheid struggle as a young student. But over the years I attended many political rallies that invoked the Imam's name and of course, many khutbas and talks at Claremont Mandel Masjid that commemorated the death of the Imam and elaborated on different dimensions of Imam Harun's life. 
But as we commemorate the 50th year of the Imam's death this year in, in 2019, I've become more intrigued by an apparent silence in public debates. This silence is about the muted reaction and response of the broader Muslim community and its leadership to the detention and death of the Imam. What I knew was that over 30,000 people attended his janazah. But I was more intrigued, uh, but what I was more intrigued by was what did the Muslim community do for the 123 days that the Imam was in detention? And what did they do after he was murdered in detention? After all, at the time of the Imam's detention, he was a high-ranking member of the Muslim Judicial Council. He had served as chairman of the MJC from 1959 to 1960. And he was editor of the mouthpiece of Cape Town's Muslim community, the Muslim News, now called the Muslim Views. So I searched for some historical accounts of this time, and in my talk this evening would like to share some insights from my readings and research on how the broader Muslim community in Cape Town reacted to the detention of the Imam and how they responded to his death. I believe there are critical lessons we can learn from that period for how we as Muslim citizens engage socially and politically today. So to briefly recap, Imam Harun was arrested and detained on the 28th of May 1969. That evening was also Milad al-Nabi and Muslims all over the Western Cape gathered in Masajid to commemorate the Prophet peace be upon him's birthday. At Stekhmanot Masjid, where the Imam was to lead that evening's proceedings, the Deputy Imam had to make the announcement to confirm Imam Harun's detention earlier in the day. The congregation, understandably, were in shock and immediately sought out the support of other sheikhs, imams, Muslim institutions to rally support and pro protest against the imam's detention, but with little success. The first indication of the indifference with which the broader Muslim community and its leadership would respond to the imam's detention came when Muslim news sought to distance itself from the political views and activities of the Imam three days after his detention. The editorial board of Muslim News issued a statement saying the following, quote, Muslim News is not a political paper and does not publish political views or news. It only concerns itself with the religious and social needs of the Muslim community. Whatever political views Imam Harun expresses is entirely his own views and not in the capacity as editor of the Muslim News. This was published in the Cape Times of the 31st of May 1969. Five days later, Muslim News published an editorial in their own newspaper to say the following. If Imam Harun is being held because of his political views, then there is nothing Muslim news can do about the situation as Imam Harun's position as editor was to express the religious aspects of the community. Muslim news would not hesitate for one moment to register the protest of all Muslims if our deen, that is our religion, were in peril. 
and this was in the Muslim news of the 6th of June 1969. In this editorial and in the statement itself, the Muslim news epitomized the indifferent and apolitical stance of local sheikhs and imams as well as the broader Muslim community. And this view contrasted with the outspoken views against the racism and injustices of the apartheid regime expressed by Imam Harun. Muslim news preferred to assume that the Imam's opposition to racism and injustice was just about politics and had nothing to do with the Imam's faith in Islam. This was the, despite the fact that Imam Harun used his platform at Al Jamia Masjid to draw on Islamic teachings of justice, to mobilize his congregation to speak out against racism and apartheid injustices. This included speaking out against the Group Areas Act in the 1960s that affected all oppressed communities, including those of Claremont. In witnessing to justice and speaking truth to power, Imam Harun stood apart from his ulama colleagues of that time. By being part of the ulama body, the MJC, he had perhaps hoped to influence them too, to speak out against the injustices of the apartheid regime, but to no avail. To give you an idea once again, in the six editions of Muslim news that were published during the four months that Imam Harun was in detention, the paper did not once protest against Imam Harun's indefinite detention or call for his release. And yet, as I said at the time, the Imam was the editor of that newspaper and they had given prominence to many of his other activities including his trips abroad and meetings with prominent Muslim ulama in the Middle East. But on his unjust detention, they were silent. A week after the Imam's detention, the Cape Times published a strongly worded letter of protest against the detention of Imam Harun, written by a prominent Christian cleric. However, throughout the 123 days of Imam Harun's detention, no protest letter was published from a Muslim religious leader or any other Muslim institution or individual. Given the track record of the liberal Cape Times at that time, it is unlikely that they would have refused to publish such a letter were it to be received. The fact is, the Muslim voice of protest was silent in the public domain. The Stegman Road Masjid congregation stood isolated in their quest to protest and raise awareness against the unjust detention of Imam Harun. Not surprisingly, during the period that the Imam was in detention, some of his students at Al Jamia were also hauled in for questioning by the apartheid security branch, forcing those who were close to the Imam to keep a low profile and go underground. Nevertheless, during every Friday khutbah at Al Jamia Masjid, Imam Harun's continued detention was mentioned and during congregational prayers they performed a special kunut prayer for him. Some members of the Stekhmanod Masjid also continued to lobby prominent sheikhs and imams in the MJC and there was also Muslim assembly at the time 
to issue a formal protest against Imam Harun's indefinite detention and to demand that the Imam be charged or released. Every single member of the ulama who had been approached refused to issue a public statement in this regard. There was no outcry from the Muslim community or ulama when, a month after the Imam's detention, it became known that Wilson Roundtree had terminated the employment of Imam Harun and this was his only source of income since he had refused any payment for his services as Imam at Stechman Road Masjid. There was no rallying from the Imam's colleagues in the MJC or Muslim News to financially support his wife, who was left alone to care for her two young children while the Imam was in detention. This support was left to her family, the Imam's family, friends and students of Imam Harun from the Al Jamia Masjid. Now it could be argued that the silence from the ulama and broader Muslim community was out of fear that the same fate would befall those who spoke out about the Imam's detention. But I want to suggest it was not primarily fear, but rather a very conscious silence. The stance from the ulama at that time was that Imam Harun's detention was a political affair that had nothing to do with him being Muslim or an Imam and so they wanted no involvement in that. It was an attitude that reflected not only the parochialism or closed-mindedness of the Muslim community at that time, but also sadly a deep-seated racism that regarded the anti-apartheid struggle as the black man's struggle, not the struggle of Muslims. Rather than identifying with the struggle of all the oppressed in the country, Muslims prefer to see themselves as an ethnic group of Malays, who in their minds occupied a higher status than black African in the apartheid racist ideology. As long as they were allowed to practice their religion without interference, they were satisfied with their status in the apartheid system. As a consequence of embracing this racist ideology, Muslims sought to curry favor with apartheid officials and refrained from criticizing the state and expected to be given privileges that other black Africans were denied. Of course, they soon found out how misguided they were. However, I want to add that to say that the ulama and broader community, Muslim community at that time were apolitical is actually a bit of a misnomer. Because during that same period from May 1969, community newspapers carried news stories of prominent Muslim ulama and public figures fraternizing and honoring apartheid army generals, apartheid ministers, and even inviting the mayor of Cape Town to speak at Muslim-hosted events, and this was not Patricia Doyle. So rather than being apolitical, the broader Muslim community and the ulama in particular deliberately chose silence or accommodation with the apartheid state. I'll give you one example. 
On the 15th of June 1969, which was about a month after Imam Harun had been detained, the inaugural edition of a local newsletter called Shura was published. It carried a prominent story of the official opening of the Robben Island Kramat of Sayyid Abdurrahman Matura. The Muslim leadership had gathered on Robben Island with the then Minister of Prisons, General J.C. Stain, as the official guest of honor. At the ceremony on Robben Island, no mention was made of Imam Harun's de de detention or the other political prisoners on Robben Island. And General Stain was presented with a garland by the Muslim leadership at the end of the ceremony. So not only did this newsletter, the Shura, carry the story but also showed the, the photos. The indifference displayed by the broader Muslim leadership to the unjust detention of Imam Harun was indeed shocking. They literally carried on with what they called their religious matters while remaining silent about one of their colleagues who was being held incommunicado and tortured in prison for standing up for justice for the oppressed of this country. Meanwhile, the friends and family of Imam Harun and congregants of Sheikh Manor Masjid were desperate to get any information about the Imam's whereabouts and well-being. Despite their own fears of also being detained because of their association with the Imam, some of them used to go and hang out in the streets around Caledon Square Prison and shout out the Imam's name in the hope that he was being held there because of course they didn't know and hoped that he could hear them and respond. On one such occasion, one of the Imam's students recalls that Imam Harun heard their shouts and responded only by saying, Dit gaan maswaar hier. Weeks later, the Imam was killed in prison. So on Saturday, the 27th of September, 1969, 123 days after Imam Harun had been detained, two security policemen delivered the news to his wife, Ante Halima Harun, that the Imam had died in detention. The news spread rapidly and hundreds started to converge on the home of the Imam in Athlone. A post-mortem was requested by the family to determine the cause of death, leading to a delay in the Imam's janazah and burial until Monday the 29th of September. Reports of the Imam's janazah inform us that more than 30,000 men and women, Muslims and people of other faiths attended the funeral procession that walked from Athlone to Mowbray. The Janazah Salah was performed at City Park Stadium opposite the Imam's home. And despite the presence of prominent sheikhs and Imams from the MJC and Muslim Assembly, the Janazah Salah was fittingly led by one of the Imam's own students from Al Jamia Masjid, Omar Khum, with Salim Davids. The Janazah was the largest ever seen in Cape Town. And the anti-apartheid eulogies and speeches delivered after the Salah and at the Makbara turned the Imam Janazah into a massive political demonstration against the apartheid regime. Speakers 
included political activist Victor Vessels, Eulalie Scott from the Black Sash, as well as Shabir Syria from the Muslim Assembly and Sheikh Nazim Muhammad of the MJC. All of them praised the Imam for standing up for truth, justice and human dignity and condemned the apartheid state for the Imam's unlawful detention and unanswered questions about his death. Imam Harun was the seventh person to die in detention in 1969 and the 19th known death in detention. The death of Imam Harun also sparked international condemnation of the apartheid uh, state. But despite the anger and fervor of the crowd at the Imam Janaza, it did little to shake the broader Muslim community and its leadership out of its political complacency after his death. In fact, they reverted to their stoic silence uttering no more public pro protests at the unjust killing of the Imam. Although in a few issues in October 1969, Muslim News extensively covered the Imam's janaza and published many, many messages of condolences. However, it still stopped short of attributing the Imam's struggle against the injustices of apartheid to his deep commitment to Islam and its teachings of social justice. During the month of Ramadan, which was just five weeks after the Imam's death, the Jamia Masjid was the only masjid where Imam Harun's struggle for social justice was still commem commemorated during sermons and invocations read for him every evening. Not only was there silence from the ulama and broader Muslim community, but also no support for the widow of the Imam who was left to care for two young school-going children. In fact, it was the white liberal opposition parties who used their privilege in parliament and in the media following the death of Imam Harun to launch a sustained protest campaign over two years against unlawful deaths in detention and it was them who amplified calls for an inquest into the death of Imam Harun. At no time did Muslim news or any of the Muslim organizations or ulama publicly support the call for an inquest into the death of Imam Harun. When the inquest was eventually held and the findings made public five and a half months after the Imam's death, there was once again an outcry from the white liberal press and opposition members of parliament. They condemned the inquest findings that the Imam had died as a result of injuries from falling down a flight of stairs. It was obvious to them that the evidence of injuries to the Imam's body suggested otherwise. The 26 bruises on his body and broken rib suggested that he had been tortured to death. The Cape Times carried several comments from white liberal institutions and prominent Christian clergy who condemned the inquest findings, but not one of the ulama or Muslim organizations issued a statement about the inquest findings. The Muslim news did not even carry a report on the inquest findings. Such was the indifference of the broader Muslim community to the unjust killing of Imam Harun. A year later, 
the Cape Times carried an editorial to commemorate the first anniversary of the death of the Imam in September 1970. Muslim news was silent. The Al Jamia Masjid stood alone in paying tribute to their beloved and martyred Imam. Two years after the death of Imam Harun in 1971, Anglican priest Reverend Bernard Rankmore embarked on a 67-day fast at the Karamat on Signal Hill to demand an official judicial inquiry into the death of Imam Harun. And Reverend Rankmore had not even met Imam Harun. His fast was reported virtually every day in the Cape Town, in the Cape Times, keeping alive the uproar over the Imam's death. And about 500 people, people visited Rankmore at the shrine every week during his fast to support his cause, including congregants from Al Jamia Masjid. But it was not mostly Muslims that were going up there in their droves to support him. In fact, the prominent Muslim organizations remained aloof from Reverend Rankmore's campaign, while some Muslims actively protested against this Christian reverence fast, as they called it, claiming he was violating the sanctity of the Karamat, and that since Imam Harun was buried two years ago, they felt it was not necessary to keep the issue of the Imam's death alive. The sad truth is, it was only a decade after the death of Imam Harun, in the late 1970s, that the first major commemorative meeting for Imam Harun was organized within the Muslim community by the South African Students Association. It was only from that period onwards, this is 10 years afterwards, that commemorating the legacy of Imam Harun and his struggle for social justice became an annual event embraced especially by young activist organizations of the 1980s like Qibla, the Call of Islam, and the Muslim Youth Movement. And of course, today we continue these annual commemorations. This history of the silence and inaction of the Muslim community and its leadership should serve as an indictment to those who believe that we as con conscientious Muslims should always strive to uphold principles of faith, justice, and compassion. This history should serve as a cautionary tale for how we engage in the political and social space of today. Shukran. And a special thanks to Jamia Halant, who gave us a very riveting, moving address about the silence surrounding the death of Imam Abdullah Harun. You tuned to Voice of the Cape 91.3, a special outside broadcast coming to you live from the Darul Ilam Institute in Salt River. And we're going to go to the marketplace. When we come back, we are going to open the floor and talk to our panel in a Q&A session in which we are going to interrogate and ask the question, why the silence? on the life and the death of Imam Abdullah Harun. We'll be back after this.
live from Cape Town. This is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Outside broadcast coming to live from Salt River, not the Voice of the Cape studios, but the Darul Irim Institute in Pope Street, number three to be exact. We are indulging in a series entitled The Life and Legacy of Imam Abdullah Harun. And Jamia Halant has uh, given us an address about the question surrounding the silence after the death of Imam Harun and the lack of support that he did not get from ulama, from the community and from, from activists alike. Uh, during her address, we just have to remember that Jamia is in fact uh, a daughter of Stechman Road. Her late father uh, was Sadiq Halant, was a well-known school teacher, and um, he was uh, also a student of the late Imam Abdullah Harun. What we're going to be doing from here, we're going to be asking some questions, but I'm just going to add some commentary, um, if I may, to the whole, the whole dialogue. What I found very interesting were Jamia's comments about the Reverend Bernard Rankmore. Um, I actually had the privilege of meeting him in, in, in 1971, which gives away a few years here and there. And I wasn't a Muslim at the time, but the whole saga of, of what happened to Imam Abdullah Harun was very definitely um, an issue, quote unquote, in the so-called white community of that time, probably because of a sense of guilt, is the only way I can probably describe it. I can remember, profoundly remember the earthquake. I really remember that. But in talking to, to Reverend Bernard Rank, what became a very interesting experience because he was the most gracious human being I think I've probably ever met, a very humble and a very spiritual man. And I remember asking him, but, but why did you do this? Why did you do this? I mean, you're a Christian, this man's a Muslim, and you nearly died fasting for the justice of this man. And his, his simple answer was, uh, I had to do it. That was his answer, as simple as that. And I've never forgotten that moment. I've never actually spoken about it before, but I've never forgotten it. The humility of, of this particular human being. Um, it, for him, it was an issue of humanity. Um, he, had, he had a big heart. He was also a very spiritual man, and he said he had some very interesting experiences in the Karamat itself, um, which he said was private, but he certainly um, had some very interesting experiences. And not once did he talk about the boorishness of some of the shayukh who were very aggressive towards him and told him horrible words as to what is he doing in the karamat, why is he wasting his time. And he was very gracious, as I say, and he never spoke about that. Just another thing that, that happened many years ago in times of Imam Harun, and we're going to ask some questions. Just in case anybody has any doubts about the status, the stature, the maqam, of Imam Abdullah Harun, I can tell you this story and it's on very good authority. Many years ago some people went to visit the graveyard in Salt River and they kept on seeing a light coming from a grave. 
and they went to Sheikh Yusuf the Costa. This happened many years ago. And Sheikh Yusuf said, okay, take me to the grave. And they took him to the grave. And of course, you all know, it was the grave of Imam Abdullah Harun. So I just thought I'd like to put that out there, just in case anybody might be harboring some lingering doubts about the status, the spiritual status actually, of Imam Abdullah Harun, apart from all his other contributions. But now I'm going to ask a question to the panel from the floor. You're also welcome to ask questions. I'm going to ask Imam Rashid Omar, uh, just because he's next to me. Um, was Imam Harun's focus on the youth perhaps one of the reasons why the current status quo of scholars and ulama at the time didn't really react? Was it, were they resentful of the youth at that time? Yeah, it was a different era, I mean, you know, and uh, of course we mustn't be too harsh in terms of judging the past, but I'll give you one example. When Imam Harun was appointed as Imam of the Al Jamia Masjid in Stikhman Road in 1955, mm -hmm. he was opposed by many people. Reason being, he was too young. And how old was he? 31 years old. Mm -hmm. So imagine at the time, even if you were 31 years old, you were too young to be an Imam. Right? So I mean, it's a completely different era. So if that was the attitude towards a 31 year old uh, human being becoming a, a religious, what about? folks younger than that so there was you know a hierarchy in terms of um, uh, you know age things have changed um, and of course Imam Harun that was one of the great things uh, about him he reached out to the young people mm -hmm. and um, you know there was a kind of what I call a symbiotic relationship with them he taught them the deen they taught him the signs of the times because young people really, you know, have their feet to the ground. You know, you you. you no know, social media in those days. Absolutely, these days you have yeah, these uh, yeah. electronic gadgets. You give it to a five-year-old, you you circle to work it. They within a minute they they they've got it figured out. Mm -hmm. They're not scared of this stuff. So young people have their ears to the ground. They read the signs of the time. And Imam, in his relationship with them, you know, began to see what the issues were. Also. And an important thing is, at the time, as Jamia was saying, because of this apolitical, uh, acquiescent attitude of the Muslim community, the best young minds in our community, right, who were, you know, thinking about this, became, you know, alienated from Islam. They were marginalized because they couldn't relate the messages of the Imams and the Shu'ur couldn't resonate with them. And what Imam Harun had done then is when he began to develop the social justice message of Islam, he began to attract them back uh, to the fold and they became his close comrades um, and I think that's where the Claremont Muslim Youth Association began to flourish, the Muslim Youth Movement in District 6 mm -hmm. and also in the Strand and elsewhere. So that was a, a particularly uh, important contribution of Imam Harun in, in, in rejuvenating and bringing the youth voice uh, back within the Muslim community. Indeed, we're talking, talking legacy here. Jamia, um, something that comes out very clear in your talk, and it comes through very clearly through the pages of history, is this dichotomy between um, politics and religion. I mean, it, you stayed in Stechman right before the Group Areas Act 
came down, you weren't, you weren't there. Your parents stayed there, but your father stayed there. Um, how do you understand this as, um, let's say, the second generation after Imam Harun? This, this strange dichotomy where today we struggle to understand the fact that the Imams and the Sheikhs could not talk about uh, socio-political issues. Um, absolutely, I th it is very difficult for our generation to think um, or cons consider that people at that time thought in that way. I mean, for, for us today, when we talk about our activism, we, we very deliberately invoke our faith, and not only Muslims, I'm talking about other activists as well, you know, it, the, the one's faith um, that drives one's activism is, is made very explicit, um, very open. And I think it is, I mean, those for me are primarily where I feel we can derive the lessons from that history. Because it is really, you know, Imam Harun, through his, through his activism, through drawing on his faith tradition, that he's taught us that, firstly, there can be no political complacency, apathy, indifference, when social, political, and economic injustices persist uh, in our society today. You know, this for me is one of the key lessons that, 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 that he taught us. But also the other thing, through his own activism, he also exemplified uh, Islam's message of non-racialism. And he taught us that when striving for social justice, there's no separation between our faith and our social activism. And, you know, even today, you know, despite us reflecting critically on that history, I think that there are people who still kind of yearn back, perhaps, to that time, or even act today, you know, in that time where people, you know, may find themselves in positions where they say, well, that's politics. We don't want to get in, in, involved there. If you think about the very, very real current struggle that all of us are engaging and thinking about how we can deal with it with respect to the war on the Cape Flats. You know, what is, what, what should our own, you know, faith, tradition, um, notions of justice, what is it that, you know, should inspire us, drive us to go out there and do something, um, um, raise awareness about it, but do something about the war on the Cape Flats. We cannot sit and say, well, you know, it's fine, we've got our masks and we, we no, no, we, everybody leaves us in peace. Um, so I think that those are real lessons from that history. And with respect to, to my, you know, the theme of this paper, um, talking about the silence and, and trying to explain why might this have been um, the case, I think it speaks to the dangers of civil society organizations seeking patronage from the state. We saw in that period um, Muslim ulama, you know, fraternizing with apartheid um, officials and so on. And I think that position is a dangerous position because seeking patronage from the state silences us from speaking truth to power. It silences us from holding state institutions, government officials accountable for their mandate, which is to serve all the people of this country equitably, with justice and compassion. And we cannot afford to think only about Muslim interests and saying, well, as long as they're looking after us, as long as we've got a Hajj and Umrah Council and they're allowed to operate 
independently and autonomously, then we find we cannot um, uh, operate uh, in those kinds of silos. No, absolutely, and and to pick on what, what Jamia is saying, the, the whole issue of, of non-racism, if we look at our, our social history of this community, there are, are, there, there are two Imams that seem to epitomize this. The first one, it's only my view, was Tuan Guru in the madrasa that he established in Dorp Street because that madrasa was like the United Nations of, of slavery. And we kind of fast forward until the 60s to a place called Claremont, to our Jamia Masjid, and here's a young Imam um, who is now not only talking about awareness upon, uh, amongst the people in his mosque, he's talking about, to, about Islam to people in the townships. And this is groundbreaking. But Imam Rashid, how do we put all of this into context in terms of the silence? I'm struggling to come to terms with that. There's a number of factors, I mean, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, intriguing, introspective question. We've tackled it from very uh, many angles, but also there is a crisis in Islamic thought and particularly political thinking. Um, you know, we have, in terms of our moral ethical values and conduct, we have, you know, what we call the fiqh, the jurisprudence, and fiqh is usually divided into fiqh al-ibadat, which is the salah zakat and so on, but there's also fiqh al-mu'amalat, which is social transactions, right? And under there we have fiqh al-nikah, talaq, and, you know, inheritance, uh, criminal justice law, but we also have public policy. It's called in classical Islam, it was called Al-Ahkam Al-Sultaniyyah. And in more modern times, Al-Siyasat Al-Shari'iyyah. There is a, you know, that's the Achilles heel of contemporary Muslim thinking. Now, when you think about Ibadat, you know, Muslim scholars were, were a bit hesitant to do any Ijtihad. But in Mu'amalat, in the changing conditions and times, you know, they were more, uh, you know, lenient in terms of allowing, in fact, encouraging ijtihad in terms of different times. Now, if you look at the medieval uh, mindset and worldview, which we still stuck with, the world was divided into two abodes. Darul Islam, the abode of Islam, and Darul Kufr, the, you know, the abode of war, Darul Harb, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's no basis for that in the Quran or the Hadith. It was just the way in which medieval Muslims saw the world. And so Muslims had to live in Darul Islam. If you lived in Darul Harb, you're supposed to make Hijrah. Now if you, you know, put, still have that mindset in today's world, then we as Muslims here in South Africa are supposed to be living in Darul Harb, the abode of war. But we have more freedoms uh -huh. to express our religion. Which country would we want to go to? Which Muslim-majority country would we want to make hijrah to? And say that is Darul Islam. Show me one country. So that paradigm actually is obsolete. Right? Uh -huh. And so it, it requires new and fresh thinking. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the crises of how do we deal with what people call politics. It's not politics, it's actually, you know, religion in the public arena or social justice activism. Doesn't mean you want to be part of a political party or you want to be in the state.
but you have a role as an active citizen. And Alhamdulillah, in recent times, great scholars like, um, uh, you know, uh, Sheikh Yusuf Al-Qardawi, Sheikh Abdullah bin Mahfouz bin Bayya, uh, the Mauritanian Sheikh, have come up with a concept called um, Fiqh Al-Muwatana. The Fiqh, the jurisprudence of citizenship. Mm -hmm. How do you become an active citizen uh, you know, within your particular country. And I think so, you know, there's some healing to this crisis of Muslim thinking. And I think many of the ulama in the past suffered from that. Um, also, the scholars are now indicating that for new scholars, they need to have a good grounding in the social sciences, what is called, um, uh, you know, fiqhul uh, waqia, to be able to understand the reality. Because you can't be just in your books, without reading the signs of the times to be able because you have to apply that fiqh into a real world so i think this is also part of the crisis that our uh, scholars in the past may allah you know grant them all jannah inshallah struggled with but there's no reason in this contemporary era for scholars to still um, have that deficit because the scholarship has moved on and the thinking is there for us to empower ourselves to think anew and not to have a truncated vision of Islam, but a comprehensive vision of Islam that sees our responsibility as active citizens. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask you, it's probably a difficult question, but in this omission, in this silence, there's a tremendous pain. How do we address it? Because we are now in an era and an age where we have the power to address it. But how do we do it? Um, how do we address the past? I'm not too sure how to even ask the question. Um, do you have any ideas in this regard? Um, does somebody need to make an apology? Um, does somebody need to make retribution? I don't know. I don't have the answers. That's why I'm asking the question. Well, I think in the first instance, uh, you know, in, since 2017 with the Ahmad Timal case, we've seen that the reopening of the inquest into Ahmad Timal and, and the call in 2019 for the opening up um, and re-inquest into the death of Imam Harun, I think is part of that path towards both justice and healing. And, you know, the Harun family has taken, taken on um, uh, this journey with the support uh, of others. But I do, I do think, and, and part of you know, what I was speaking about um, this evening suggests even more strongly to me that perhaps institutions like the MJC, Muslim Views Today, should acknowledge this history uh, and, and maybe apologize on behalf of their predecessors in the spirit of saying never again will their institutions be found wanting in speaking out against all forms of injustices, whether perpetrated against Muslims or people of other faiths, against black or against white, against men or women, and whether perpetrated by state or non-state uh, actors. It would be about the institutions today saying we recognize those errors, those mistakes of the past and we've learned from them 
and we going forward will not be found wanting in that way again and I think you know it would be a path of healing not only for the Harun family to, to hear that but I think for the for the all of the, of the congregants, the family and friends of Imam Harun who felt that isolation um, and, and abandonment almost during the time of, of, of highest need. Um, so that's my uh, suggestion. But um, I believe somebody's going to come forward and uh, pose a question. We are running out of time. You can talk into that mic. I'm sure we'll be able to hear you. Um, what I just wanted to know is that um, rank conservatism and that ability to really silence any possible um, support at that time for Stichman Road Mosque, which would have been progressive. How have we changed? I mean, uh, that ability to really have that almost unified silence um, around an issue like that. How have we changed in the community? How um, to prevent something like that as well? Relevant question and I'll hand the difficult question to the Imam. I, I think that this is a very useful question and that's I think one of the reasons why we're having this discussion. Not so that we can uh, go back to the past but, but to learn that lesson, and I think we haven't. If we look at the way in which the lackluster response to the war on the Cape Flats, mm -hmm. 1,600 human beings have lost their lives in the first six months of this year. And the kind of responses is really not up to, and Hifdul Hayat, the, the preservation, the sanctity of human life, is so an, uh, the first of the maqasid of the Sharia. So we haven't moved, we have moved a little bit, but I think that, you know, by learning that lesson of the past, we can do much better. And uh, Kasim Khan from the Imam Harun organization, I'm going to give you the last uh, 38 and a half seconds. Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim I think one of the things that has been interesting for us as we are um, doing activities around commemoration was one of our first meetings that we had held was with the, um, with the Muslim Judicial Council. And before we had even had the opportunity to explain who we are and what we wanted to do, we were heartened by the fact that Sheikh uh, Irfan um, Abrams turned to Fatima and said that we have not done enough we could have done more and we apologize. And I think this is a, a, a momentous step. The second person that I think that was equally interesting for us at Clement Main Road Masjid, when uh, um, Farid Sayed, the current editor of Muslim News spoke, and which he had also explained that, that clearly Muslim News before had had shortcomings in the way in which they responded. I think what is more important in the last 15 seconds <laughs> is that we are also wanting to hear and, and um, from particularly the interrogators, the children of Spaker and Khanas uh, and all of these beneficiaries who are directly involved, that we need to hear from them and that they need to hear our story so that they are able to understand and appreciate that the loss that Fatima was here with us and Muhammad and Shamila and the children of many of the others, right? Uh, was never understood and they never communicated with us. And I think what helps us is when you have somebody like Dr. Balalam Farbut speaking and saying, he was my grandfather, mm -hmm. but I, I am aware of what his policies did and what he may have done. I think that's the depth to which we must be uh, investigating and interrogating apology. 
Kasim Khan, shukran for that. On that note, we have to meet and greet from the Darul Ilm Institute in Salt River. One of the series, The Life and Legacy of Imam Abdullah Haroon. It's been interesting. Um, it's also been quite sad, but um, it's been an absolutely moving. And Kasim Khan will be speaking next week at um, the Darul Ilm Institute. So um, pack the hall from the ceiling to the rafters. There's still a bit of room in the rafters uh, when you come next week. Uh, a big shukran to everybody attending here this evening on such a cold night. And uh, from myself, Shafiq Morton, in Salt River, a special thanks to Jamia Halant, Imam Rashid Omar, Nazim Peterson. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.